Well, that's good to see everybody. I'm, I'm glad that um, you all made it out today and, and also glad to be able to commun- communicate with those who are uh, joining us online. We pray that uh, you're comfortable and, and able to enjoy the events of the day and um, also just glad to have all, all of you out here with us. Um, it's not too bad, is it? Do you guys remember like three months ago we were all praying for rain? So maybe it's just like that, that whole Daniel experience where Daniel prayed for something and then the angel of the Lord came to give him the answer and the enemy fought against him and it took him many days to get to, to, get to Daniel to give him the answer. Maybe the Lord is, uh, is now answering our prayers for rain and we're getting it now. I don't know. But uh, the rain is good. We thank the Lord for it and um, we thank the Lord for the privilege to be able to meet and to worship the Lord together and to study his word these are um, these are freedoms that we uh, don't want to take for granted, and so uh, what a blessing it is. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Ruth uh, during the holiday season. I was wrestling with whether or not to do a, a secondary um, series for Christmas, and I thought what better um, series to go through than, than to go through the book of Ruth. It really is, it really is the story of, of Christmas in an Old Testament setting. It sets the stage and establishes a foundation, if you will, um, through prophecy and promises in the Old Testament and through narratives that we can have hope that uh, Christmas is is going to happen for these people futuristically, and it did happen for us. And so, so we can, I think, go through it with confidence that uh, the stories, the narratives line up so that we can learn and grow about the redemptive work of Christ and, and really, that is what the book of Ruth is about. It's about the redemptive work of Christ. It's, it's pressing us towards that redemptive work. And the book of Ruth is a book of redemption. And we see Christ being uh, represented, if you will, in, in an Old Testament narrative to prepare us for his, his ultimate coming in, in the future. And so uh, we want to be mindful of that. The Bible says in Luke 2, our most familiar Christmas passage of Scripture, unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And um, we could say, we could, without too much um, stretching, we could say, unto us is born this day a Redeemer. And because that work is very similar, it's a, a setting free. We've been saved from our sins, saved from the wrath of God, uh, and delivered into His graces, and delivered into His his kindnesses and his favor. So we see that throughout the book of Ruth as we um, look at redemption and, and what it looks like and what it means. This, this morning, I'd like to just do a little bit of a review of the first chapter and then maybe um, bite off a piece of the second chapter. And then, um, and then next week, we'll pick back up as we move forward. The Bible says, and I want to just read the first chapter with you, and I'm going to stop and, and make some comments as we go through it to kind of familiarize everybody with where we're at in this narrative, in this Old Testament story, um, pressing us towards Christ, um, pressing us to the fulfillment of the promises that we're going to have through Boaz, through Obed, and then ultimately David, and then, and then to Christ. So let's read together. If you just want to follow along in your Bibles, we'll begin in Ruth and chapter number 1. And this really is to set a stage for preparing people for redemption. 
If you look at chapter number two, it, it, in the first verse, it introduces Boaz, who is the redeemer. But you have this first chapter, the purpose of it is to kind of prepare people for redemption, to prepare someone's heart to, to receive or to respond properly to the Redeemer. Okay, the Redeemer is going to be presented, but if man's heart isn't ready to receive or respond to the Redeemer, what, you're, what you have is you have the, the reenactment of what takes place when Christ comes and the Hebrew people are not prepared for Christ's come because they're looking for a kingdom builder. They're looking for someone who's going to come and annihilate the Roman government and set up his kingdom. So their hearts are not prepared. They're not humble. They're not ready for redemption. So ultimately what they do is when the Redeemer comes, they reject him. And they refuse him. And, and, they, uh, and they inherit judgment because of that. Ruth 1 is to set the stage for how can we be preparing ourselves for the Redeemer when He comes into our life. And, 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 and note this, it's not just the Redeemer for salvation. Uh, Nate, Ruth is a picture of being redeemed from her lost condition or from her sins. Naomi is a picture of somebody who is wayward as a Christian being redeemed from her waywardness. So if you're here with us this morning and you say, Pastor John, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you, this doesn't really mean anything to me. I've been redeemed. There's, there's redemption for salvation. There is also practical redemption for daily life. There are things that you're dealing with this very morning that uh, you need to be redeemed from. You need to be bought out of. It might be bitterness, it might be frustration, it might be anger, it might be lust, it might be a number of different addictions that you de are dealing with in your life. But remember this, there is not just the redemption that is salvific, but there is a redemption that each one of us needs that only Jesus Christ can give us. And you may be one of those people that has trying, tried everything that is available to you to be set free from whatever you're dealing with, and you haven't realized that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the only way, not just to be redeemed from our sins, but to be redeemed from our daily challenges, our addictions and our troubles and our, um, those types of things that, that defeat us and bring us down. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the ultimate answer and the only answer. And we, we all say amen to that, right? I don't think there's anybody in here or online that's watching this that wouldn't say amen to the fact that Jesus is the only answer. The when the problem is, is when, that, when the rubber hits the road and we're facing something tomorrow on Monday, the worst day of the week, right? Or maybe it's Sunday morning when we come to church and it's raining and we don't know what to do and we face the temptation to maybe have a bad attitude or to respond incorrectly. We need Jesus to set us free in that moment from what we're feeling. So he's not just the salvific redeemer like Ruth represents here, but he is a, a redeemer for day-to-day -day life. He is a redeemer for, for, for Naomi when she's bitter. He's a redeemer for Naomi when she's complaining and murmuring and hopeless and helpless, right? He's a redeemer for both of these ladies in this text of Scripture. So let's walk through it together. And then I want to give you about five simple truths that I see here in this text that I think might be helpful to prepare us, maybe this morning not for salvific redemption, but... If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ in a very personal way, you're not, you're not friends with him, he's not, your, he's not your Savior and Lord, let me say something to you. There's nothing more important than to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. 
There's nothing more freeing. Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. He is the Son of God. He became a man. And in becoming a man, he took upon himself all of our sins and infirmities. And he died on a tree so that we, didn't, we don't have to do that. Because we cannot. And he offered to us the free gift of salvation, of redemption. He offers that to us who believe. He gives that to those who believe. So there is nothing more important this morning, if you're here and don't know Christ as your Savior, there's nothing more important than that. If you're here this morning and you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior, but right now you are a slave to something. You are a slave to something. And you need Jesus Christ, you need Jesus Christ to practically redeem you from whatever it is that you're a slave to. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only redeemer, and we'll see that here in our text. Walk with me through it. The Bible says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. I'm going to make comments as we go through it just to kind of unfold this. If you go back to chapter number, um, if you go back to the last chapter of Judges, chapter 21, you'll find that the last verse says, And there was no ruler in the land, and men did that which was right in their own eyes. So ultimately, we could say this, in the days where men did that which was right in their own eyes, there was a famine in the land. In the days where men lived for themselves, in the days where men were selfish and rebellious, in the days where men did not uh, want to be interfered with, when when men wanted to do their own things, and I'm bringing all of this up because this is the day that we're living in. The, The season of the judges is the season of today. We want to live in our own little world. We want our own little bubble to be what, what it, we, we live in and everybody else focuses on our bubble. In the days where men did that which was right in their own eyes, where men lived for themselves, there was a famine in the land. Now, I want you to note this. There was a famine in the land for what reason? Was it a coincidence that there was a famine in the land when men were doing whatever they wanted to do? Was there? There's no coincidence here, even though it seems like it's a coincidence. Oh, there's a famine in the land. It's not a coincidence. The issue is men are living for themselves selfishly, rebelliously, and and because of that, there is a famine in the land. All, All throughout Scripture, you find famine, pestilence, war, and disease are God's way of dealing with men who are doing that which is right in their own eyes. When men live rebelliously, they can expect that there is going to be famine, pestilence, war, and disease. And that it's going to come from God. It's not going to be accidental or incidental. It's purposeful. Rebellion leads to punishment and discipline. James 4 and verse 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So many things, such as famine, are seen in the book of Ruth as coincidence, but they're not coincidence, they're actually providence. So there's a famine in the land, let's keep going. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So Elimelech is his name. What Elimelech decides to do is, I'm going to escape God's chastening. 
I'm going to run from God's chastening. I'm going to go somewhere where God is not chastening. Elimelech didn't think about changing his direction or changing his living after his own desires or selfish living. Elimelech says, I want to keep living the way that I'm living, but let me get out, out from underneath God's judgment. Isn't that how we do things? We don't want to stop living unrighteously. We don't want to stop living selfishly. We don't want to stop living the way that we want to live and doing what's right in our own eyes. We just don't want the results of it. This is the way humanity is. We want to do whatever we want to do, but Lord God, please don't make me suffer for it. Right? That's our prayer. It's not, Lord, make me righteous. It's, Lord, don't let me suffer the punishment for my unrighteousness. So that's what Elimelech does. Elimelech says, hey, God is sending chastisement. I'm getting out of here. So he packs up his family. He packs up his family, his, his wife and his two daughters, and he takes them, listen to me, he takes them to a horrible place. He takes them to Moab. Moab is the seat of unrighteousness. Moab is the seat of rebellion. Moab is the seat, the place where all of this stuff originates. He takes them to a horrible place. He takes his family to a horrible place to avoid, stop living selfishly and facing God's judgment. This is a horrible decision that Elimelech makes, but he makes it. He takes them to this place. He says here, we'll go on. He says that he was going to sojourn there, so his, his intention was to go there for a short period of time, but they end up staying there for a long period of time, don't they? They sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now just a short note here. Jesus Christ, Micah 5 and verse number 2, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. The same place that we're seeing here, it's a connection. It's not put here by accident, it's connecting this story to the story of Christ. So they leave the place where Christ's presence is, the, the house of bread is what Bethlehem meant. They leave the place where God's presence is because it's under chastisement to go to wicked places. And Jesus is being connected to this story by this uh, Bethlehem Ephrata. He's being connected because Micah 5 and verse 2 tells us that that's where Jesus would be born. That it would rise up from this great leader, Jesus would rise up out of Bethlehem Ephrata. The Bible says they went into the country of Moab and remained there. This implying that they did not stay for the brief period of time that they had planned Remember this, you never stay for a brief period of time when sin gets a hold of you. You never stay for a brief period of time. I wrote this down. You partake to scratch an itch, to satisfy a craving, to medicate a hurt, to enjoy a pleasure, to avoid a pain, but you end up staying to satisfy an addiction. In other words, you go for very fleshly, carnal, selfish reasons, thinking that you can go and then escape, but before you know it, you're locked into that temptation. It's no longer a temptation. It's now an addiction. And now you can't escape. There is no escaping. And that's what happened with Elimelech. When they went there, they became consumed with that life. The Bible says in verse number 3, but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died. 
and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. Okay, we know what we know what the Lord says about that, right? All we have to do is think about what Jared already read this morning. Marrying people who were not of the Hebrew uh, descent was against God's will. It was against God's plan. We see this with Solomon. He married 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. The Bible says in the last part of his life that Solomon went away from the Lord because of his wives. And he followed their, their gods. His two sons marry Moabite women, which should we be surprised that that happened? Take them into, the, take them into Moab and expect that they're going to marry Moabites. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. <clears throat> they lived there <clears throat> for 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women were left without their sons, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons or her husband. Now let me just say this to you. This is super, super significant, because basically these three women have no means to make, to make life. They have no means. During this culture, it wasn't like the women could just go out and get normal jobs and just take care of themselves. That was not acceptable in this culture. This was an extremely difficult moment for these three women. They had no means to take care of themselves. There was no heir to carry on the name, which was a completely humiliating thing for them. No one to carry on the name of Elimelech. No one to supply their needs. No one to care for them. These women, these three women, are in a state of desperation. They're desperate. The Bible says in verse number 6, Then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So Naomi is likely gleaning in the fields, the same thing that Ruth is going to do later in the scriptures. She's out there. She's not able to be a normal, um, a regular paid employee, if you will, of the farmers to go out and gather the food, but she's able to glean. God has set this up in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God has set up the law that the farmers or the, the, those who would be harvesting would leave food behind, Right? They would accidentally, it's interesting because this is another place where the accidental is actually providential, right? This story is full of accidental that's providential. <laughs> Matter of fact, folks, life is full of accidental that's providential. Nothing is accidental. It's providential. God is working things out. And so he says to the, far, he says to the harvesters, he's like, hey, drop some on the ground, don't act like you're tired when you get to the end of the row and leave some there and go to the next row. And the reason for that is that the widows and the orphans and those who, had, um, <clears throat> those who were poor could go in behind them and could pick up that leftover food. And it would be their supply because they could not get normal jobs. This was a way of God blessing these people with means. We see this in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19 and 23. So Naomi is out and she's gleaning in the field. She's gathering. She's, she's taking care of her needs and her people needs. And then another accident happens, which is a providence and not an accident. So she <laughs> set out from the, let's see here, 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Again, accidental, providential. Naomi heard because God ordained her to hear that this blessing had returned to the children of Israel. That Bethlehem was blessed again. Verse number 7. So she set out from the place where she was and with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you shall be found, that, that you may have rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Will you, <clears throat> um, will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband that night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the Lord has gone out against me. And they'll just stop for a moment and say this. Naomi is describing their situation. She's describing the despair that they're in. She's describing this moment in their narrative where they have nothing. They have nothing to look forward to. They have no help. They have no hope. Here's the hope. Yeah, Naomi's going to get pregnant again, have a son. That son's going to grow up, and Ruth and and, uh, Orpah are going to wait, and they can marry them. She's she's saying, in, in effect, we have no hope. There is no hope for you. There is no hope for me. The Bible says in verse number 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on on until they came to Bethlehem. And when when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the and the and the women said, I'll just note this for a moment again, mentioned this earlier, 50 miles treacherous journey these women are absolutely weary now i i I would imagine that they're not only weary physically i would imagine that spiritually they're weary emotionally they're weary every way that you could be weary these women are weary they're at the end of themselves they're at the last moment there's nothing left to to tire them out but there's nothing that they can do beyond this to have any strength to keep on going. The women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I want you to note a few things as we continue here. Um, Naomi comes back bitter, seeing God's hand uh, of God's um, cans of chastening on them. She comes back bitter. Ruth comes back Moabite. Okay, she's foreign. She's an outcast. She's a, a matter of fact. Many scholars believe the reason why Naomi was kind of like pressing her aside is because she was like really an outcast. They didn't view the Moabite people in any kind of a good way. But you'll notice as you read through this text that Ruth's Moabite heritage is pointed out over and over and over again. It's, it's, not, it's not missing at any point that Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was an outcast. Ruth was a reject. Ruth wasn't your, oh, let's choose them for the team. She was the last one standing in line waiting. She was David, who didn't get called to the meeting to see who would be the next king, but instead was out taking care of the sheep. That's what Ruth was. And there's a reason why I bring that up, and we'll see here in a moment. The Bible says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, again, just pressing this Moab Moab situation. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi was a relative of her husband. Now now Naomi, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let her go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose field, in whose sight I will find favor and she said to her go my daughter so she went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech and I'm going to stop there this morning but I want you to just to notice again the accident that is provident okay she happened to end up in the field of Boaz right and we all say to that yeah right she didn't happen to end up into the field of Boaz. The text is simply saying that, that to man, this was not something that they planned, that they organized, that they structured. But what's clear in this text, especially in verse number one, the narrator, the person who is narrating this story, decides to throw Boaz into the picture before Boaz is ever in the picture. Before Boaz is even introduced to Naomi, or Ruth, according to the rest of the text, before Boaz is even known to them, the narrator decides to throw him into the picture. And I think that there's a reason for that. I think what is happening is is that Ruth and Naomi are so significantly demoralized and depleted of all energy and strength to keep on going. Isn't it true that when you get to that place in your life, whether you're in your Christian life or just your daily life, that you get so close to the end that it is important that the narrator tells you about the Redeemer? Isn't that important sometimes? Don't you need to hear in that moment where it's total desperate and despair and there is no hope and there is no light at the end of the tunnel, there is no help in front of us. Isn't it good that Jesus tells us of himself? That the narrator says, okay, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know you're at the end of yourself. But listen, there's a Redeemer who is coming. 
And it, it presses us in this moment in verse number one of chapter number two to know somebody is coming that's not there yet. I'm so excited to, to, to share this is what Jesus does for us. This is what the whole Old Testament is about. Is it's pressing us to, to know that somebody is coming that's not here yet. And we're looking forward to that too. There's, there's a rapture of the church coming. Jesus Christ is going to come back. and He's going to take his church out of here. And he's going to, he's going to redeem us finally and physically from all of the horrible things that this world has to offer. But it's not yet. But there are times in your life, folks, where you just need to be reminded that there was a man of the relative of God who was sent to this earth to bring redemption to us and to bring hope to us and to bring deliverance to us. That's what this Christmas season is all about, folks. It is two in verse one. There's a man named Boaz. There's a man named Jesus, and he is of the family of Elimelech. He is hope for you. Oh, I can only imagine the I can only imagine the relief that these two women feel in this moment where they think there is no redeemer. There's no one in our family anymore. My sons are dead, my husband is dead. There is no hope and all of a sudden, no, there's hope. And there's hope for all of us folks. It's hope in Jesus Christ. He is our hope, he is our help, he is our redeemer. Forgive me for getting excited about the Lord this morning, but I am excited about it. I want to give you a few thoughts, five things this morning that, that uh, I believe are just practical truths to prepare us for, for coming face-to-face with our Redeemer, for, 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 for seeing Him and, 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 and accepting Him and, and enjoying Him and embracing Him. Maybe this morning it's sal- salvation for you, but maybe it's something just really in your daily life. Maybe you're... Maybe you're not Ruth and you're not lost, but maybe you're Naomi and you're bitter. Maybe you're Naomi and you're, and you're some other worldly, selfish, I'm doing what's right in my own eyes type of an attitude. Listen to me. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Let me give you five things. First of all, God uses compassionate... I'm, I'm blowing all over the place here. So let me get back to my thought here. Number one, I'm going to close this up. Number one, God uses compassionate yet often painful means to prepare His people for redemption. God uses compassionate yet often painful means to prepare His people for redemption. Remember this, famine was not an accident. Not only was famine that led them into Moab not an accident, because God was working to redeem them from themselves. The problem was when they were in Bethlehem, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Our compassionate God sends a famine saying, I can't leave you like that. I can't let you stay in that situation. That's dangerous for you. So God sends a famine to set them free from themselves. And what does man do? Well, man runs away from the famine because they don't want to be set free from themselves. So what does God send in Moab? Well, God sends a famine in Moab. God sends problems in Moab, right? God sends whatever it takes to get his people where he needs them to be. Whatever it takes. And it's not, it's not because he's angry with us. It's because he loves us. He loves us more than we can imagine. Famine to bring us back from self-righteousness. Famine again to bring to bring 
Naomi and uh, back from waywardness or rebellion or backsliding, the loss of everything, okay? She lost everything that should have been hopeful to her, didn't she? She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost everything that would have been a source of stability and security for her. Why? Because when she meets, when she meets Boaz, she needs to be totally focused on Boaz. If, if, if God would have left her with anything to, be, to sustain her, to be that source of, of care that she needed, she would have not been ready to receive Boaz. It's the same way with us, folks. It's the same principle with us. Sometimes God has to deplete us completely of everything that we would take any strength in, that we would gain any support in physically. He has to deplete us of it so that we find only hope in Jesus. He has to do that. It's not a mean act. It's a gracious act. It's an eternal act for Ruth and for Naomi. God uses compassionate yet sometimes painful means to bring his people to redemption. The messenger in the field was not an accident. That was a means. The conflict between Ruth uh, and, and, and Naomi about going to Moab, that was not an accident. That was a depleting. What is God doing with Naomi? She, he's depleting her, slowly depleting her. Why a 50-mile trek back? Is, is that an accident? No, that was orchestrated. You say, well, that's because of, that's how long of a distance it was. Yes, and that was orchestrated too. When God created the world, this whole picture was in mind of redemption. This story was in mind of redemption. He could have put them next to each other. He said he puts them apart. Why? He's going to deplete Naomi of Naomi. He's going to deplete her of her. A 50-mile treacherous journey. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3.24, So then the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is, this word here, schoolmaster, means it's our disciplinarian. The law is our disciplinarian. What does it do? It depletes us. The law depletes us of ourselves. It makes us seem so unworthy and unable. Why? Because we need Jesus. The law makes you ready for Jesus. If you've never faced the law in an honest way, when you face Jesus, you will not be ready for Jesus. Listen, folks, this is the reason why our world is full of false converts who have never faced themselves in light of the law and they think of Jesus as this partner in their life. Jesus is not a partner in your life. You become a partaker of his life if you're a believer because your life stinks. And I don't say that to be mean, but that's the reality. Until we realize how stinky our life is, we will never be ready to take on Jesus' life. This is what he has to prove to them. This is why it, it go, they go through all of this struggle is to see, this is, I can't do it. But then there's chapter 2 and verse number 1. <laughs> there's Boaz waiting. When you can't do it, there's a Boaz waiting. And there's a Jesus waiting, but he's not there if you can do it. You've got to not be able to do it. God uses compassionate yet often painful means to prepare his people for redemption. Number two, God brings his people to Christ for redemption. 
God brings his people to Christ ready for redemption. When we meet Christ, when we meet Boaz, we are ready to meet Christ and to meet Boaz. Both the wayward believer and the Moabite unbeliever were made ready for meeting Boaz. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last days. John 6.37 says, All that come to me, all that the Father brings to me, will come to me, and those who come to me I will raise up in the last days. Here's what God does. Jesus Christ will not accept a proud man. Amen? So what does God do? What does God do? He humbles them. That's what he does. Through circumstances and situations, Jesus, what's more important, their life now or their life forever? So what does God, in his compassionate heart, what does God do? God says, I'm not going to leave you prideful, so I'm going to humble you so that you can be saved. God humbles us. God wearies us. God breaks us. God empties us so that when we meet the Messiah, we will receive him. God does whatever is necessary to prepare a person's heart to receive Christ. I'm so glad about that, aren't you? How many of you, if God would have just left you alone, you would have come? You wouldn't. God had to do things in your life purposefully, providentially, to prepare your heart to take, to take and receive Christ. It's an amazing work. God's work in our lives, folks, is an eternal work before the foundation of the world. Naomi was without her husband to provide for her, protect her, without heirs to carry on the family name, with, a, with two daughters-in-law who now she had to care for and provide for and protect. She was bitter. She was feeling forsaken and forgotten. She was empty physically, emotionally, and spiritually. She was tired after a 50-mile treacherous, treacherous journey. And listen to me, she was ready for Boaz. And this is why he gets introduced in verse number 1. Even though she does not meet him, he gets introduced because they're ready for Boaz. The Bible says in, Ma in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, you are familiar with it. Come unto me, all you who are, all you who are what? Are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come unto me, all you who are capable and strong and able. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You are depleted. God brings his people to Christ ready for redemption. Number three. Redemption is only for those who come. Redemption is only for those who come. Ruth and Naomi both come to Bethlehem. Get this. Ruth and Naomi both come to Bethlehem for one reason. Do you know what it is? They know that God is there. They know that God is there. God has brought blessing on Bethlehem, and Ruth and Naomi go to the place where the blessing is, and they come, and they're looking for help. They come, and they're looking for deliverance. They come, and they're looking for redemption. They come, and they're looking for, for being set free. They come looking for what Jesus Christ is offering. Those that the Father brings in Matthew and John 6.37, it says that they will come. 
Ruth and Naomi come from Moab, a place of wickedness, to a place where God's presence is. They come not demanding. They come not expecting. They come not fixing. Matter of fact, Ruth comes bitter, and, and or, or, Mo, Naomi become, comes bitter, and Ruth comes a Moabite. Remember that. You will see in this text that when, when, when Naomi comes to them and they say, oh, this is Naomi, she says to them, no longer call me Naomi, but call me Mara. You know what she's saying to them? She's saying, I am bitter. Do you know what most of us do? We say, Lord, I used to be bitter, but I fixed it now. Naomi comes to this situation with absolute, 100% complete honesty about her condition. I am bitter. I am angry. I am frustrated. And Naomi and, and Ruth comes and doesn't say, I used to be a Moabite, but I'm not anymore. She's like, I'm a Moabite. There's absolute, complete honesty about these women's these women's condition. Why is that? Listen to me, folks. Jesus Christ saves those who are honest about their condition. The Bible says in 1 John 1 and verse 9, um, I'm trying to draw a blank. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, Ruth and Naomi could have come claiming having fixed everything. And look, look, Jesus, look at what we bring to the table. No. Look, Jesus, look what you get. Bitterness and Moabitess. But Jesus ain't winning in that deal, is he? They're winning. Do you know what it takes as Christians? Not just salvifically. If you're here and you're not saved, you need to admit that you're not saved, that you are a, re- a rebel against God, an enemy against God, and you need his deliverance. But if you're here and you are saved, do you know what you need to acknowledge? If you're here and you're saved and you're bound by some uh, whatever it might be, you need to admit it to God. Quit coming to him with your fixes. He doesn't need your fixes. He is the fix. Boaz is the fix. He doesn't need us to fix our problems. He, need us to, he needs us to confess our problems and to pray down and to fall down in front of him and worship and say, God, I can't do it, but you can. They confess and acknowledge who they are. No show, no acting, no deception. Lord, this is who we are. We're here for help. You can almost see this picture of these, of these people at like a, 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 a gracious giving of a meal when people come and say, I don't have anything, I need help. I think it's our modern day Christianity, we come to Jesus with all of our offerings and we're like, hey, look at what we've got, Lord, we'll, we'll exchange it. The Lord's like, no, 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 no. When you come to me, you must come looking for help, deliverance. You're not the answer, I am the answer. They come to Bethlehem not fixed. They come to Bethlehem broken. They come to Bethlehem not full. They come to Bethlehem empty because that's what Boaz fixes. And that's what Jesus fixes. Redemption is for those who recognize their need and and instead of fixing it, they cry out to Jesus for deliverance. Let me give you number four. What time is it? Somebody give me the time real quick. I don't want to... Okay, we've got a few more minutes here. Redemption, listen to me, redemption is only through the Redeemer. Redemption is only through the Redeemer. There's only one Redeemer in the book of Ruth. Listen to me. There's two, right? At the end of the book, there's like this other Redeemer who was a closer relative to 
to, um, to Naomi and Ruth, right? Listen to me. There's only one Redeemer who will take you. There's only one Redeemer who will take you. You see, at the end, there's another Redeemer that comes to the surface, and, the, and, and, and Boaz talks to him, and he says, Nah, I can't take Ruth and Naomi because they'll mess up my stuff. But you know what Boaz says? I'll take them. I'll take them. There's only one Redeemer who will take you, and there's only one Redeemer who will take me, and there's only one Redeemer who is capable of redeeming, and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Listen to me, folks. We're in a culture today where we, we seek to find redemption in anything and everything we can other than Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who can redeem. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can set you free. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no one, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And then John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one Redeemer to save you from your sins, and there's one Redeemer to save you from your addictions, and it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Come to him humbly, broken, fall down before him and plead with him for deliverance. He alone can give it. Number five, redemption is planned, not coincidence. Redemption is planned, not coincidence. What you will find in this, the reason why verse number one introduces Boaz is because it was already set up It was already established before Ruth and Naomi ever even get to Bethlehem. It is already established that Boaz is going to bring redemption to them. It wasn't an accident. Her entering into Boaz's field, and she just happened upon it. That wasn't an accident. All of the things in the book of Ruth that seem to be coincidental, it's written in that way to give you an understanding of the things that man sees as coincidental are divinely designed by God to bring about his purposes and his plan. They are divinely designed by God to bring about his purposes and his plan. The reason why chapter 2 and verse 1 says, hey, look, there's this Boaz before they ever enter on the scene is because God has already organized that Boaz is going to be, going to be meeting up with, with Ruth at some point in time and they're going to become one and David's going to become a result of their marriage and Jesus is going to become a result of their marriage and we are going to become a result of their marriage. Amen? That's what it's all about. That's that timeline that we're in. And we're looking forward to Jesus Christ's return, which is a result of their marriage. It's not an accident, folks. Our God, is the, our God is sovereign. It's not an accident that you're here this morning. It's not an accident that it's raining out. It's not an accident that it's uncomfortable. None of this stuff is an accident. We don't live in a world that is coincidental. We live in a world where a providential God is working out His purposes and His plan for His glory. And a part of that includes our redemption. It includes our salvation, our hope in Him. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All of this has a divine design and a divine purpose. 
and we can trust God in it. My prayer for you this holiday season, this Christmas season, is that you will, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, wherever you're at, you'll know that as you look through, okay, okay, Lord, prepare me to see your redemption this Christmas season. Prepare me to experience your powerful deliverance in this new, uh, different area of my life. Let me know you uniquely during this holiday season so that you might be glorified and I might be changed. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. We thank you for this narrative and this story of two women who are obviously completely undeserving, unworthy of your grace and your goodness, and yet you show powerfully how extraordinary your grace is, how free your grace is, how humbling your grace is. And I pray that you will help us all to see our own stories in light of these two women and in light of Boaz or Jesus Christ, who is the only hope of redemption. Lord, especially during this Christmas season, may we be focused on Jesus Christ, who alone redeems, who sovereignly redeems, who providentially redeems, because he is a gracious, because you are a gracious and loving God. We thank you so much for this time together this morning, and we pray your blessing upon it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.